Welcome to season three of This Is Me. My name is Katie Matten and in the previous two seasons, Siobhan met everyday Australians and they shared with us their life-changing moments. In this new season of This Is Me, we have 10 inspiring stories that will hopefully let you walk a mile in someone else's shoes. If you have a story you'd like to share, you can DM us at This Is Me Podcast on Instagram. My name is Sophia. I am 40 years old. I am a survivor of child abuse, cancer and domestic violence. There's some stains on your photo They all cracks on your rusty frame Now, Sophia, for everyone that knows you, you are a ray of sunshine in everyone's lives. But things weren't always like that for you, were they? No, not at all. I grew up in a cultural background, a Fijian, Indian and Pakistani background, but born in Australia. With my mum, who was a single mum, I grew up in Brisbane. I had a very weird childhood because my father was never around. All I ever heard about my father was negative things. My mother enforced me disliking my father, hating him. And I use the word hate very strongly because those were the words that she used. I was a child, so I didn't really understand what that meant until I became an adult. I've always been loud, outspoken, centre of attention. At the age of five, I was being sexually abused by my stepfather. I can specifically remember the exact moment I told my mum that I felt something was not right. I was standing underneath a jacaranda tree at a bus stop and we were waiting for a bus. And I said to my mum, this is what he is doing to me. And she turned to me and said, will you invite him upstairs to your bedroom? That's what happens. And at five, I genuinely remember going, oh, well, okay, well then this is my fault because when he would come over, I'd be excited to, you know, show him the game that I was playing on my Commodore 64. And he would have taken that as a, oh, you want to be alone with me? I'll genuinely never understand what was going through his mind when he was doing what he did. Um, There were so many incidences. Like he would allow me to sit on his lap to steer the steering wheel um, while driving the car into the car park, but he used that as an opportunity to touch me. He would say that there was a birthday party for his daughter and told my mum that it was at a certain time but picked me up three hours earlier than the party and took me back to his house and did horrible things to me. I was only five and that just set the tone for the rest of my future with men and the relationships that I had with men, um, with friendships and the relationship that I had with friendships as well. Did he tell you to keep quiet and not tell your mum? Never told me to keep quiet, never told me to not tell my mum. I'm pretty sure now looking back at it as an adult, I, I believe he would have known that I wasn't gonna say anything. 
he had been previously married to another Fijian Indian woman who was no one to my mum. They'd had two children together. They had a son and a daughter together. Um, so I had some step-siblings. My step-siblings didn't want anything to do with me. I was the enemy. My mum and I were the enemies. We had stolen their father away from them. That's how they saw it. We'd wrecked their family. And in later years, when I was about 18, I bumped into my stepsister at a mutual friend's house. My stepsister is a, was, I, I don't know her now. I don't speak to her. I haven't spoken to her for about 15 years, but she was this beautiful girl on the outside, but a lot of anger issues. So she was known to be the tomboy, the tough guy. She would fight you anywhere that she saw you. She would be the girl that got into a fight in a club with a guy. She had no fear. So when I saw her at this party, I was so scared because I turned to my friends. I'm like, she is going to fight me and she's going to beat me and she's going to beat me to a pulp in a literal sense. And one of the friends that I was with was very much a tough girl like my stepsister was. So she was like, don't worry, I've got this. She tries to come at you. And my stepsister was intimidated by that. And at that point, we started talking and we became friends. Maybe a year later, she asked me to meet her at a car park at a fast food outlet. And she hopped into the passenger seat of my car and she said, I have to ask you something. And without even thinking, I knew exactly what she was going to ask me. And I knew that she was going to ask me, was I sexually abused by her biological father? And I didn't allow her to finish the sentence because I still can't imagine what it would be like to know that your father, someone who has raised you, could do something so horrible to another human being, let alone an innocent child. And she became quite emotional. And I told her that it was true. And it turns out that he had done the same thing to one of her high school friends. At that time, her and I became even more closer than words could describe. And her mother had remarried and had had another child, which was a little girl. And my stepfather used to babysit her because he still had quite a good relationship um, with his ex-partner. And I remember saying to her, like, right, well, we know what he's going to do already because he's done it to me. He's done it to your friend. He's going to do it to her. So we started working around the clock that when her little sister would need babysitting and he was asked to do it, that we would be like, I'll just take a day of work. Don't worry. You don't have to send my little sister to him for babysitting. I'll babysit her. So we became very protective, um, aware, protective and very very aware and tried really really hard to to not let this repeat how long did the abuse go on for until I was about 13 eight years yeah a very 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 long time as a innocent little five-year-old when this monster came into your room did you know what he was doing was wrong yes Definitely, because it didn't feel right. 
um, when, you know, someone starts asking, oh, God, the irony of it is that he'd ask, can I touch you here? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And for years and years and years, I blamed myself because I was like, oh, well, you allow this to happen because when he said, can I touch you here? You said, yeah, sure, no worries. Yeah, but you were five. And yes, I'm 40 years old now and it has taken me a long, long, long time to understand that I didn't allow this to happen to me, that he was a growing adult yeah. and he had a choice and he made the wrong choice. I also for years went down the trap of he's obviously not a healthy person mentally, so I can't blame him for what he did to me. Um, I can just accept that he is who he is and move on to the point where my stepsister and I ended up living together for a number of years and I would be the one going, have you called dad? you know, we need to invite dad over because, you know, it's been like a long time. And I called him dad. A lot of that, I believe, is because I didn't have a father figure in my life. So when this guy came along saying that I'm going to be your dad, I was like, oh, cool. This is good because, you know, all my friends at school have a mum and a dad and now I've got one. I think my strongest memory is of the birthday party when he took me and mum lived... Um, in Forningside, which is where I grew up. And he lived in the Logan area. So it was, you know, a good half an hour drive. But when you're a kid, that seems like an eternity in a car that you're traveling somewhere. I remember being excited going, oh my God, a party, there's gonna be this and that. And I walked into an empty house with no one there and just him in this big house. And he just proceeded to take me to his bedroom. That's when he started asking me, can I touch you here? Can I do this to you? Can I do that to you? Um, and it was then, and I was probably about maybe six or seven at that point, maybe a little bit younger. Um, and that's when he proceeded to abuse me at full penetration at that age. I remember being in pain and all of a sudden I had these memories come back because where mum and I lived, we were in a two-story townhouse and there was no carpet upstairs. There was only wooden floors. And I would remember him coming over and then going upstairs at night to have sex with mum. And all I could ever hear my mum go is, stop, that hurts oh, no, 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 stop, that hurts. And then all I could hear was the bed going against the wooden floor. By this point, I was probably like maybe nine. This specific memory that I'm talking about, I remember wanting to go and getting a packet of Panadol and eating the entire packet of Panadol because I'd heard that if you eat an entire packet of Panadol, you will die. I don't know what... I was trying to achieve by that. I don't know if it was, I was just so like, oh, he's hurt me and now he's hurting my mum. He's doing the same thing that he did to me. I remember saying, stop, that hurts. It doesn't feel right. 
And now he's doing the exact same thing to mum. Okay, well, what do I do to stop this? Um, okay, I can go eat a packet of Panadol. Um, that'll stop it because that means then it's over and then I don't feel any pain anymore. I don't have to feel these feelings that I'm feeling. That eventually stopped because I became a teenager and um, I obviously understood that what was happening wasn't right. Um, but then as a typical teenager, you need money for things. And mum at that time had um, retired from employment. So she was on Centrelink benefits. So, you know, things were always tied around home. So I'd ask him for money and he would say, well, I'll give you $50 if you let me touch you like this. I remember allowing that to happen at the age of 13 and it was the first and last time that I allowed that to happen because I honestly, I I don't even know mentally what I was thinking when I allowed that to happen. And then I stopped and then I remember confronting him one day because I needed some money and he said, I'll pick you up and meet me here. And of course, the second I got into his car, he tried to start touching my leg and I'm like, no, this isn't happening. I just want $50 and I don't want to do anything for it. I will pay you back. And I don't know what he said. And I got so upset and I got angry at him. And I said, do you understand how old I was when you did what you did to me? I said, I was five years old. And he turns around and he goes, you weren't five you were seven okay I'm so sorry like that makes it okay I'm so sorry that I was under the age of 10 and that gave you the access to do what you had to do to me your mum stayed with him knowing what he was doing to you yes and I have so many issues with my mother she ended it eventually I'm guessing that she could see a massive change within me as a child Keep in mind that Indian culture, like getting divorced is just like a big no-no. And my mum was already a divorced mum when she met my stepdad. I remember her saying to me, you know, if I leave him, you know people are going to talk, right? People are going to talk was more important than our own safety and mental health. In mum's defence, she's grown up in a very poor country, She grew up in poverty herself. She doesn't know what mental health is. And she's still, she's 78 and she still doesn't understand what mental health is. And the roles have reversed completely in our relationship now. I am now a mother figure to her, guiding her and explaining things to her when she says something incorrectly or says something harshly emotionally. I have to explain to her, mum, you can't say that because that's going to hurt that person's feelings. I feel something must have happened when she did leave him. And she, I want to say she started overcompensating because she finally understood what was happening and went, ooh, I've made a mistake here. And I would go to friends' houses and I was that friend where my mum would ring 20 times a night at the friends' houses. And in hindsight, you were safer out of the house than you were in your own home. Yes, absolutely. 
obviously you were only a young child when all this was happening to you. Have you been to the police since? Has this no. monster ever been charged? No, no, he hasn't. But the last that I heard, he had to have a triple bypass for a heart condition and he got throat cancer. So karma yeah. is a bitch and yeah. <laughs> what goes around does indefinitely come around. And as horrible as it sounds, you know, if he suffered a slow, painful death, I wouldn't be sad about it. Yeah. And that's really, really horrible to say because, you know, even those who have done bad things, you know, deserve a chance to redeem themselves. I just don't believe he ever had the ability to redeem himself. He started with me when I was five and I thought it was only me that he had done it to. But then I found out that he did it to my stepsister's friend. You know, like he was ruthless. He didn't care who he stood on in the way of satisfying his own sick need in his mind. I understand that he's mentally not well because someone who's mentally stable and well would not do something like that to a child. I understand that. But the fact that he had to have a triple bypass and a stint and then he got throat cancer, I was like, you got what you deserve. You know, there are people that realise that they have an issue and they do things to better themselves. I believe that I've done things in my life now at 40 to better myself, but he never did. Is there any part of you that wishes that he was in prison and he was paying for what he did for you in that way? No, because I've learned that if he was in a jail cell, like it wouldn't satisfy me because the damage is done. What he did to me affected me mentally, you know. It led me to be with men that were so abusive because I felt that that's all I deserved or even more so that that was normal, you know. It was okay to be thrown down a flight of stairs. Um, you know, it was okay to be in intensive care for three months, unconscious. Like, it led me to believe that, it's okay. It's okay. And him being in prison wasn't going to change that because that had already happened to me. I'd already moved on with my life and maybe, you know, other horrible decisions that I'd made with my choices of men and general relationships that were toxic for me. So the damage was done. Him being in prison isn't going to resolve anything. It's not going to achieve anything for me. All I can do for myself is go, okay, you know what's happened to you. How are you going to deal with it? What are you going to do? How are you going to move on with your life? How are you going to change it? When he left, you were about 13, mm -hmm. were you? Mm-hmm, yep. How was your life after that, after he was gone? Oh, my goodness. I was a rebel. I wanted to break all the rules in the world. I became a real people pleaser did anything and everything to please my peers around me you know anything to be accepted um I ended up going to the police station at the age of 16 and I said is there anything that you can do legally to bring me back home if I ran away from home today and they said how old are you and I said 16 and they said no and I stayed at friends' houses, I bunked on couches, 
I would walk up and down Queen Street Mall and ask random, excuse me, have you got a spare dollar? Have you got a spare $2 so I can get home? I think I remember that night I got like $18 and I was like, wow, jackpot. I have got $18. I am going straight to McDonald's to get something to eat. After that, I walked up to where the casino is now in Brisbane. I don't know if there's a bus shelter there across the road from the casino now, but there was at that time. And there were a couple of homeless people that were sleeping in there. And I slept in the bus stop with them. How long did this go on for where you were sort of on and off sleeping rough? Probably till I was about 18. And then I went to TAFE um, at 18 and I did my year 11 and 12 in one year because I realised, okay, I'm, I'm not going to get a job. I started doing a lot of random jobs. I did door-to-door sales. I did telemarketing. I sold Kirby vacuum cleaners over the phone. I'm really showing my age. And I was excellent at that too. And it was at that point where I realized I'm like, I've got a skill. I can sell things. I have the gift of the gap. Yeah. And if I look back at it now, all of those things that happened to me led me to have the gift of the gab to go so I could talk myself out of situations. Like if, you know, a police officer approached me in Queen Street Mall asking me what I was doing there at three o'clock in the morning, dad's going to come pick me up soon, you know, and the police officer would leave me. When did you meet your first boyfriend? 16. And that was um, a horrible relationship because now in hindsight, I look back, I was always, always looking for a father figure in a relationship and he was very controlling and you can't go here and you can't go there and you can't do this, but, you know, would keep me at his house most nights, but then go and sleep with my friend. Um, Eventually that friend ended up becoming pregnant and she ended up having three children with him and, He was my first and longest DV relationship. I started dating, inverted commas, him when I was about 16 and it eventually ended when I was 23. Um, And at 19, he started taking some heavy drugs. He came from a very sad background himself. He came to the country as a refugee. He had a really, really horrible life. I just assumed that that was how life was that okay um you get sexually abused okay that's wrong but that just happens you get punched in the face when you've said too much that's normal that's just that's just how it is he became violent when he started taking drugs he started using heroin and things got pretty dark pretty quickly i felt pregnant Quite often he would threaten to commit suicide by shooting an eight ball of heroin up his arm. Um, I remember one night he called me um, to his mom's house, which is where he was living. He needed money for drugs. And I remember going, no, I don't have any money to give you. And he said, I know you've got money. And I tried to leave and he wouldn't let me leave. And then he proceeded to punch me in the face, punch me in the stomach in front of his mum. His mum became imaginably very upset. But instead of asking him to stop, she told him to get out and take me with him. And then, yeah, he proceeded to take me outside and until he got what he wanted. He had my arm around my back. 
um, my handbag on the bonnet of my car, opened my wallet, took my money out, threw my keys on the road and said, you can go now. Like I was just this piece of shit that didn't deserve anything more than what he was offering me. Then I felt pregnant. They all went, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, I want to keep it. I went to my local GP. I asked him to tell my mum. And then it was on because I had grown up in a very, very strict Muslim household. Um, they made me ring the priest at the mosque. And the priest was like, oh, you must have an abortion. I'm like, it was so contradictory to everything that I had seen around me. So I did have an abortion. I started hemorrhaging one night um, quite severely. Turned out that I'd had a massive infection. That in turn caused permanent damage to my fertility. The abortion was very, very tormenting. And this doctor, he looked like he was wearing a butcher's outfit. And that's exactly what happened to me. I got butchered. It wasn't done correctly. I continued to go back to this relationship for another 10 or 12 odd years. One night he came home off this face of heroin and I had said something to one of his friends. It wasn't anything bad. I think I was just talking about a soccer game that had happened. And this friend of his had told him, oh, yes, he was talking to me about the soccer game, and he became enraged. He woke me up that night and he dragged me out of bed by my ponytail. He just started punching me in the face, punching me in the stomach and just yelling at me. And I genuinely had no idea what was going on. I also didn't know that I was pregnant again. He proceeded to throw me down the stairs. I remember when I got to the bottom of the stairs, he asked me something and I replied and I must have said something to like really, really piss him off. And he just started kicking me in the guts. And then I woke up in a hospital I'd been told that I'd been there for three months, that I was in ICU. Every single one of my ribs were broken. I could barely breathe because of pain from that. All of my blood vessels in my eyes, both eyes had burst. My face was the size of a basketball. I just remember going, who is this person when they gave me a mirror? They told me that I'd lost my child. That asked me if I wanted to press charges and I'd said no. So he had knocked you unconscious or put you into a coma? No, he had just knocked me unconscious. I believe the hospital put me into an induced coma because of the severity of my conditions, like what he had done to me. When I woke up, you know, I'd been told, oh, this person's been coming to see you every night. I'm like, oh, he came to see me. It still didn't dawn on me that I was in that bed because of him. But did the nurses and the doctors know that it was him? Yeah, so that's when the police were there by my side within like an hour going, do you want to press charges? 
and I couldn't wrap my head around what had happened. And then when he had said, Do you want to press chat? That's when the memory started coming back. Oh my God, that's right. I was sleeping. Oh my God. He came in, he started kicking me in the face and punched me. Oh my God. He's been here pretending to be someone that he isn't. And then I left him and then I got back with him. He told me that he was sorry. Um, the drugs really, really took over him. He became heavily addicted and now he has permanent psychosis damage. During that time, he had slept with a very close friend of mine. She fell pregnant with the first baby and he told me and I forgave him. And then she fell pregnant with the second baby and I forgave him. And then she fell pregnant with the third. He was living the life with her that I had always craved with him. What didn't I have that you couldn't do that with me? How old were you when you finally got out of this relationship? 23. What was life like post him? Free. I could wear what I wanted to wear. If I wanted to wear makeup, I could wear makeup. I'm still not a massive makeup person. I don't know if that's got to do with you know, him punishing me for wearing makeup because you can't wear makeup. You're going to attract other men. Honestly, going to a nightclub and knowing that he wasn't standing in the corner of a nightclub watching me, waiting to come over and tap me on the shoulder and go, we're going now. All of that ended 23 till about 27. I lived my best life. I partied like a rock star all the time. I got a better job, quite quickly climbed the ranks, got a management position within like three months of working in a retail store. And then I met another boy. I'd been single for a while when I met this guy who is still my ex. I have been single since this ex, which has been almost a decade. Met this guy, fell head over heels, moved in with him not long after. And it turned out that he had bipolar and that he wasn't taking his medication. And I came home one day to the house that we were living in together and he was licensed to hold a firearm. So I came home one day and he, he was sitting on the back balcony with his gun in his hand, staring out to the sunset with just this blank look on his face. I knew instantly, uh-oh. And so I sort of backed off and moved away and just said, look, I'm here if you need anything. And I then proceeded to call his mum because I didn't know what else to do. Was he pointing the gun at himself? No, just holding it in his hand, like just had it rested on his right thigh with his finger where the trigger was. I think I even remember asking him, do you want me to call your mate? And he went, no. I'm like, okay, cool, no worries. He just said, I'm going out. I remember really sheepishly asking him, um, where, where's your gun? I put it away. Oh, okay, cool, 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 no worries, go, go, go. That led me to end up becoming really, really close to his mum. His mum was a Jehovah's Witness. So, of course, she encouraged me at times of need to turn to the Bible and read scriptures feel like at that point in my life that I had maybe had been searching for something it's like a belonging or something when you become a JW it's pretty full-on 
one of the things that they make you do is write a letter to if you're affiliated with a religious organization or you're a part of a church, a Catholic church or a Muslim church, you have to write a letter to them saying that you no longer wish to be associated with them or their religion. But my brother was very heavily affiliated with the mosque at the time. It was, in their eyes, the biggest betrayal I could ever do. My brother is a psycho. He said to me, you know that if your body ends up in a creek, no one's going to ask any questions, right? You know that. Your own family wanted you dead because you had changed religion. Yeah. We would have Bible studies once a week at home. And my ex, he wanted to be encouraged by those things, but could never commit to it because he enjoyed taking ecstasy and drinking alcohol versus going to a kingdom hall once a week. Did you split up after the gun incident? No, I stayed with him for about another year and a half after that. And then it just became too much. He brought a girl home one night and he proceeded to have sex with this girl in the room next door to me. It was just ugly, nasty. How long were you a Jehovah's Witness for? Four to five years. It was a very lonely point in my life because being a JW, you can't be associated with worldly people. Worldly means people who are a part of the world and not a Jehovah's Witness. I was a massive, massive fan of Tupac. So I had all of this paraphernalia or whatever you want to call it. Had all this Tupac stuff and they were like, you have to get rid of it. I remember throwing my Harry Potter DVD in the bin and I was so (laughs) sad when I did it. But as a Jehovah's Witness, you're allowed to watch those movies. I became really, really depressed. And all I did was drink passion pop champagne because it was $5 a bottle because I didn't have any money. And I would get drunk all day, fall asleep, and I'd wake up and I'd look out the window and go, oh, the sun's setting. And then I'd find a bottle of half-drunk champagne somewhere, skull it again, and then fall back asleep again. And that went on for three months. At one point when I became really, really sad, I started slicing my wrists. I didn't use anything too sharp. It was almost like I just wanted to feel something. Like just, I need to feel something because I'm not, I'm numb. The hypocrisy of of the people who were in the religion started to really, really show. Like the people that I was hanging out with, you know, they'd go clubbing. We're not allowed to go clubbing. Oh, yeah, we can. Just don't get drunk and don't tell anyone. And slowly I started resenting everything. I decided to detach myself from the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I got diagnosed with stage two ovarian cancer. That out of everything that I've spoken about tonight was the easiest thing that I've had to deal with in my life. I don't know why, but when I look back at it, it was almost liberating going through it alone. When did you know something was wrong? I really knew something had been wrong with me for a few years. The biggest telltale sign was the bloating. 
I would be a literal size 18 one day and then a size 14 the next. I just didn't feel right. I went to the doctor several times and I got told it's IBS or you need to change your diet. It was nothing until I demanded an ultrasound. And when they did the ultrasound, they found my tumour. I was in hospital getting scans within a week. I started chemo almost straight away. Chemo was um, really, really tough for me because I was one week on for chemo and then three weeks off and I did that for six months. I became so weak after chemo. I'd have to like commando roll off the couch onto the floor because I physically didn't have the strength to sit up. And then I had surgery. I know I probably sound very jovial about this, but when I say it was the least horrific thing that had happened to me in my life, it was the thing that I felt I had the most control over. I could control it by getting chemotherapy. I could control it by going to the doctor's surgeries. There was no one that was controlling it for me like I said, almost empowering to choose to do it alone. It has the lowest survival rate of any women's cancer in Australia. Ovarian cancer... Ovarian cancer is women. scary. I asked for a full hysterectomy, but they wouldn't give it to me because I didn't have any children and they believed that I wasn't of mental sound mind to be making those decisions based on a psychologist interview that they'd had with me. I felt empowered after I overcame cancer. The mentality of suck it up, princess, you've got to move on with your life. I could have been a stage four, but I wasn't. I was a stage two. I got in early. I finally got a break. I've got to win. I'm alone, but I've got to win. I got a win of I was able to look after myself. I got a win of this is treatable. I got a win of I've overcome this. Alone, I did it alone. I overcame it alone. What is life like for you now? Amazing. I'm so happy. I don't tolerate anything from anyone. I don't have a filter. So I say it how it is all the time. I'm still in sales. If anything, that attitude works in my advantage now because people look at me and they go, oh, she just straight up told me that. Liberated. I feel liberated. I'm free that I can finally now at the age of 40 say what I want when it comes into my mind without being scared. I'm so grateful now that I understand when I'm having a bad day that how to cope with it. I have control of my life. Even one of the traumas that you have gone through is a massive Thing for a human being you've had so many one after the other traumas in your life I am stronger I do still have bad days but I quite quickly bounce back from them and go hey it's okay I've become resilient I said at the beginning of this podcast that you're a ray of sunshine in people's lives you've got so many friends that love you and such a big heart what does the future hold for Sophia a lot more giving. If I won the lotto today, I'd donate the majority of it to charitable organisations to help women understand when they're in a bad relationship. Don't be like me. 
and I have to wait until the ripe old age of 40 to sort of understand that, hey, you can do this on your own. My future is full of me hanging with my friends, striving in my business. I'm a business owner now. The future is my oyster. <laughs> that doesn't sound too corny. <laughs> it's been so inspiring to chat to you today. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. There's some stains on your photo. Beyond Blue is an Australian mental health and wellbeing support organisation. It can make a real difference having someone to talk to, to hear what you have to say and to give you advice. So no matter who you are or how you're feeling, reach out for support on 1300 22 4636 or at beyondblue.org.au.